This podcast was recorded before COVID-19 and protests around the death of all Black lives. Just as a reminder, here at It's Personal Podcast, we try to amplify the voices so often hidden in our world. Listen, take notes, and learn. Be nice, be kind, and respect one another. Peace. Hey, what's up, y'all? My name is Gary, and welcome to the second season of It's Personal. Okay, good. This is going to be really dope, but I don't want any <laughs> Putting yourself out there as practitioners who are growing and learning. Not at all. My name is Kwame Mbalia. Uh, I'm an author. Hey, I'm Padma Venkatraman, the author of The Bird Home. Sure, yeah. My name is Natasha Diaz. Code switching and all those things. I mean, all of that. All the time. He's still on the road all the time, but you know, like as a new mom, the relationship that I have cultivated from there, I'm so excited to talk to you. This is amazing. This is so fun. I'm Dr. Erica Buchanan Rivera. I have been in education for over 13 years. I have served as an educator teaching kindergarten, fourth grade. I have also been an administrator, administrator for 10 years. So I've been an administrator more than I have taught. Serve as an assistant principal, a principal, and currently I am a chief equity and inclusion officer within a school district in Indiana. Wow. Wow. So and how many teachers or colleagues are you responsible for? We serve nearly 23,000 students and you know, close to 1,500 staff. You know, of course, I'm serving principals, assistant principals, working with all of our directors and, and leadership team to really lay down a foundation of what educational equity should look like and to you know, work hard on creating systems that support all students, all meaning all. Wow. Wow. So can you share with us and a little bit of selfishness for me is what are some of the um, identities that you hold? Because obviously um, you are an educator. And on top of that, um, if no, obviously no one heard before this, but on top of that, we heard someone crying in the background as well. So what are some of the <laughs> identities that you carry besides being an educator? Yes, yes good question. Besides being an educator, I am a wife. I am a mother of a soon-to-be three-year-old who is forced into potty training these days due to our pandemic and <laughs> the limited amount of diapers within stores. I am a violinist, which a lot of people mm-hmm. do not know. I am also immunocompromised. You know, that is a big part of my identity as someone who lives with an autoimmune disease lupus and I advocate for lupus patients on even a national level on a multicultural council. I am a Christian that's important in terms of my identity and my faith and ultimately a lover of people and and humanity. I've always had a passion to serve others. It started very young for me with a lot of, of missionary work and taking the time to meet people who had different cultural norms and perspectives outside of my own. And I have always been immersed in advocacy work and I love what I do. You know, being a voice for 
others and helping others to use their voices in powerful ways. Wow. And I, and I guess that's a great segue into my next question is how does all of that happen? And um, I'm wondering what was your childhood look like and has your childhood kind of influence what you do today um how you absolutely i grew up in peoria illinois and attended a private k-8 school concordia lutheran and really had to figure out my own identity within that space i really did not have a sense of self-worth because I simply couldn't see myself, you know, represented among peers, among teaching staff, curriculum. I had a hard time connecting and relating to peers who did not necessarily want to interact with someone who had a different skin color. I can recall not being invited, you know, to various birthday parties. And kids are very honest and said, my parents did not want me to give you an invitation because you're black. You know, I recall my first day of school getting on a school bus. And I kid you not, it was straight out of a scene from Forrest Gump, you know, where you had multiple kids saying that you cannot sit next to me. And being five, you don't know the difference. You, know, you, you think that it's normal for someone to talk to you in that way when you're not aware of school, the rules, the culture, and, and where to fit in. And I remember after standing on the bus for at least a, a week in the aisle, and, and keep in mind, the driver never even intervened you know, when, when this was happening. My father noticed actually that I was standing before the bus took off and he stopped the bus. And then I explained to him as a five-year-old thinking this is just what you have to do and how you should operate. You know, I explained to him, you know, I am supposed to stand. You know, I, I, I don't have a seat you know, on, on the bus. I was told I needed to stand next to peers and, and that is the expectation. So he was obviously troubled and, and exchanged some words with the driver. And that was my first understanding of injustice. You know, I realized in that moment that something wasn't right. What I thought was normal, what I thought I needed to comply to was actually something that was discriminatory. And those are the start of, of some hard conversations. And, and keep in mind as a five-year-old, and I've been having those conversations for 30 plus years. <laughs> but that's been a big part of my journey. And moving into high school, it was predominantly Black, Latino public school, and that was by choice, my own choice after my elementary experience. I navigated that you know, setting you know, in a very similar life because of the tracking you know, for students and advanced you know, placement courses. So I found myself in a track where there were students of color, but I would say it was predominantly white within those courses as well. And spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, how can I help peers and other people find spaces where they can be their authentic selves? You know, what would that look like? How can I be a part of the solution? And as a violinist, 
you know, one of the things that I, I used to do in high school was play music by ear. And I would play a lot of hip hop, R and B, you know, 90s rap on my violin. So we would hold school, you know, convocations, you know, where I would play you know, music that would just center black culture. And, and it was, you know, always a great affair that would just unify, you know, our our student body and, and even from just simple acts such as that, you know, I started to do a lot of advocacy work moving on into more my higher you know, ed pathway, you know, working with various groups such as REACH, reaffirming ethnic awareness and community harmony, working with you know, Black student unions and, and really trying to set the tone for you know, racial equity work on, on campus. And, and as mentioned, you know, the work has not stopped. You know, that's why I was very passionate when I decided to explore a doctoral track to figure out how could I ground myself in, in research that would help educators learn how to foster inclusive spaces so no one would have to experience you know, these challenges that I faced you know, growing up within you know, my K-8 experience. You know, how can I help others feel seen and what tools can I give educators you know, to eradicate the barriers that students of color face? Wow, and I, 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 it's so interesting that the number of um, just people of color in general that I talk to on this podcast that have very specific experiences that they remember um, that has kind of influenced a lot of the stuff that they do. Um, everyone, um, they have more than one, but there's always one or two no, very specific, and they can they can lay it out for you as if it happened yesterday, which is- It's vivid. Mm -hmm. It is extremely vivid. And it's just very, it's very interesting to hear those stories. Eric, I'm wondering, and this is a question I think I would have asked maybe later on in our talk, but what are some of those conversations that you had with your dad or your parents during that time? And what can parents do um, starting early on to have these conversations at home with kids so they are, I guess, prepared or ready to advocate for themselves in those spaces? My parents had many conversations with me to you know, help me understand my self-worth. You know, the world may say, you know, derogatory things about your racial identity, about who you are and your existence, but we want you to know that you, know, you are strong. And so again, having all those positive affirmations, you know, within my home was you know, certainly a factor that helped me to navigate through some of the inequities that I faced within schools. And so I was very fortunate to have you know, parents who were encouraging, who were able to provide a lot of guidance and, you know, strategies, you know, to navigate the, you know, racial inequities that you would face, you know, within, you know, a school system that was designed, in essence, for students of color to fail, you know, historically. Mm -hmm. So we've had plenty of conversations. I remember 
you know, asking my parents what the N-word meant, you know, when I was first called that within school. And having people who could explain things to me in, in such, you know, a way that not only helped to inform me of, of what, you know, it, it meant to be you know, a, a survivor within that context. I think it was really powerful, you know, for me to just learn from them to, you know, have that sense of comfort, you know, within my familial structure. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I think on the other side of that, what do you do with parents who don't have to go through that? I'll, actually, I'll just say it. What do white parents do to help with that conversation? A great question. And I believe in transparency. You know, we have to acknowledge what is happening systemically within this country. We have to acknowledge that racism is real. We have to acknowledge that there are discriminatory practices that serve as barriers to people of color. We have to acknowledge the you know, problems that exist within our educational systems, you know, the disparities within achievement, within discipline, you know, within the over-identification of, of students and special education programming. We have to acknowledge that. And I believe the acknowledgement piece is the hardest part for many people because it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. you know, no one wants to admit that you know, they're benefiting from, you know, a, a system that places them in an advantageous position. And we have to start acknowledging that. We have to start having those hard conversations. And so the initial step is to get proximate to the problem, you know, as Brian Stevenson says, we have to get proximate to people's humanity. We have to get proximate to the barriers and challenges that people are facing. And then we have to have courageous conversations about our role within systems. So we have an understanding of how to you know, actively dismantle and, and remove barriers or have an understanding of the ways we've been complicit you know, within you know, an equitable system. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to really have a courageous conversation about that and decipher between the two and, and really think intentionally about our roles. You know, mm -hmm. How are we a part of the wow. solution? And in order to be a part of the solution, you have to start with the hard conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why one of the most important things and that I, I find, I think you would probably agree with me, is like you just said it, like we need to understand our own stuff. Like we, we have to dig enough to figure out why are we doing things? Why are we reacting a certain way? What are those biases, those intentions that we have that are consisting, consistently helping a system that is not helping the rest of the world. Um, I 100% agree with you. Um, Eric, can you tell me, I think, I want to just go back to like your, not so much elementary, maybe high school, and you talk a little bit about tracking. Um, and there's a few other people that came on the podcast before and talked about like that tracking system. Um, can you tell me just a little bit more about how that felt seeing that you were in this space that it sounded like we're, you fit in a little bit more, kind of, um, but then you're also put into another place within that place that kind of separates you. Um, how does that work? What did that look like um, in regards to teachers and academics? Um, and how did you navigate that as a student? 
hard. And I, it goes back to the conversation that we were having in, in terms of my household and, and being in a space where parents build you up and give you the affirmations. That was something I certainly needed because you know, I moved from one predominantly white space to, you know, essentially another one within, you know, a, a predominant space that occupied by students of, of color. And it was an interesting dynamic because on one end, you were, you know, still a, a student of color, but to the eyes of, of your peers who shared the same racial identity, you weren't necessarily black enough you know, for operating within some of those spaces. And so you know, I had to really work through you know, this identity crisis of trying to figure out who I was even during that time because there were, were such strongly rooted you know, stereotypes about race and intelligence. And that's what the tracking system does. I mean, disproportionality sends a message to people. It, it communicates messages that steer deep into stereotype threat. If you don't see a lot of people of color occupying those spaces, then you believe that it's not necessarily a space where people of color should be. And so I fought hard against you know, those stereotypes as well um, during my high school year and actually was salutatorian you know, within <laughs> high school. <laughs> and you know, really had to learn how to, again, love myself and not allow you know, the confines of, of whiteness to manifest into self-hate you know, in terms of my identity. And I think that's a conversation that is hard for even people of color to reckon with in terms of how whiteness shows up within us. But it was something I certainly had to think about when occupying the spaces. Wow, wow. I think, yeah, I think we could talk about this for a really long time. I have uh, just a few more questions for you, okay? And I think yeah. the first question is, what does, Erica like to do outside of being a mother, outside of the violin, um, outside of the equity work? Like what is something fun? What is, if I'm a fly on the wall and Erica has all the time in the world because I know that's all, you have so much time, you have so much time right now. <laughs> what would you, like what does that look like for you? Human connections. Yeah, that's what it looks like. And I've been reflecting on that more since, you know, our, state has under these lockdown protocols, you know, I miss connecting with people. You know, mm -hmm. I love spending time with people I care about. I enjoy spending time with my family, you know, with my parents, with my sister. You know, I enjoy laughing, you know, with people who know who I am, you know, who can understand my personality and my sense of humor. And I miss that, you know, mm -hmm. these days. Mm -hmm. But if you know, I could do anything right now in this moment, you know, it would be immersing myself around those who I love and truly taking the time to just enjoy one another and the strengths that we bring you know, into the room. Mm -hmm. you know, everyone has a very you know, different strength within my family and especially within my 
you know, social contacts, and I just enjoy listening and learning from people. That's awesome. Erica, thank you so much. I could, I'd love to keep you longer, but I know that you have a little yeah. one you need to check on. <laughs> yes. Um, I, where can people find you online? So I am on Twitter at Erica B. Rivera. And you can also look up information if you're just curious to know the daily you know, life of a CEIO, a Chief Equity Inclusion Officer, you can certainly look at, you know, our school's website. You know, I'm also in the process of putting together, you know, my own website to advertise more of my research. And so, Gary, I'll let you know that and you can certainly share it with your audience. Awesome. Have you, and I don't want to put more pressure on you, but I'm just going to say it if that's okay. Have you ever thought of, like, writing a book? <laughs> I am writing. <laughs> you are writing a book. That I'm is, writing. That is, I'm just going to leave it there. I don't I'm know where it. it's going, but <laughs> I am writing. <laughs> I, I would 100% be interested in your research and what you're doing. And I would 100% love to share it with colleagues and friends because I just love I love what you share and I love what you are about and you're uh, open Thank you. and honest. So I, that makes me very, that is awesome news. Do people know about this? No, <laughs> <laughs> they do now. <laughs> Erica, thank you so much. That was I guess so it's much. really personal, right? <laughs> it is very personal. <laughs> Erica, that was so much fun. Thank you.